A Canadian Pacific DC-8 is landing at Tokyo International Airport when something goes wrong. What caused this flight to hit the seawall on landing? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hello. Hello. And we are walking out the door in like less than an hour. Yes. To go to Brussels. And if that tells you anything about this episode, it is short. Very <laughs> short. That actually is the nature of the episode just as it was scheduled. It's just a short one. The report, but thank God. The report was all of 14 pages, so you're going to have a short episode. But that's just how it got to be, and it works out great because we're leaving. Yes. <laughs> right after this, and we're going Legit, because to- we... Couldn't end up doing this earlier in the week right. for multiple reasons. Yes. So, but we're leaving the country and the continent. <laughs> we're not leaving the continent until tomorrow. But. but we are leaving the country today. Yes. So, all of those things. Okay. Thanks to Tracy for Upping. increasing your patronage. Yes, I saw that. Thank you. Much appreciated. Yes. Do Much all the stuff. The newsletter and the merch. Tracy did the merch. And the ducks. She yep. did do the yes. merch. And she used her discount code. Yes. Well, that's why she. That's why she. She was like, "Hey, I'm trying to use my discount code, and it's not working." I'm like, "I'm sorry." <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Fixed. So, all that said, what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering Canadian Pacific Airlines Flight 402. Thank you to Ian for recommending this episode. Okay. Thanks, Ian. Thanks. Okay. This accident occurred on March 4th of 1966. Oh, pretty close to when this comes out, then. Yes, actually, relatively. This is a Douglas DC-843. This is one of the shorter versions of the DC-8, old versions of the DC-8. But at the time, they weren't very old. They were still relatively new. This one had the tail number Charlie Foxtrot desk, Charlie Papa Kilo. This was a flight from Hong Kong to Tokyo to Vancouver. Wow, that's a long flight. Yes. Canada. The stopover. Yep, to Canadian land. I don't have any names for the flight crew, but I do have hours and ages. The captain was 57 years old. He had 26,564 hours. That's a lot of hours. <laughs> of which 4,089 were on the DC-8. Okay. So quite not a bit bad, on the DC-8, too. Not bad, too. not bad. Yep. The first officer was 58 years old, one year older, and he had 19,789 hours total. This was, oh a, my God. This was a heavily experienced crew. So what? And he had 3,071 hours on the DC-8. So both of them also had a lot of hours on the type. Yeah. I, I know your face. Then there was the flight engineer, or the second officer. He was 34 years old. He had 7,992 hours total at the time, of which 3,437 hours were on the DC-8. So, that. At Hong Kong, 62 passengers and 10 crew boarded the flight. The flight departed Hong Kong at 4.14 p.m. Tokyo time, because the entire report was in Tokyo time. That's weird. It was in Japan time. Okay. So... Does that mean they, That's d- they don't get to Vancouver? <laughs> Is that what that means? Yeah. That Foreshadowing. Mean <laughs> <laughs> How did you guess? That mean that? That that. <laughs> yeah. I can English good. Yep. The takeoff climb and cruise were uneventful. The flight was routed to Tokyo via Taipei, Kagoshima, and Oshima at 7.08 p.m. local time in Tokyo. The aircraft was flying at 25,000 feet over Point Spencer Victor. Why they named these things this way, I have no idea. Don't ask me. <laughs> okay. When they began their gradual descent into Tokyo, 7.12 p.m., they crossed point Rice Victor, which feels oddly. So they had Spencer Victor and Rice Victor. Yes. The Rice Victor one feels weirdly racist. Racist. <laughs> yeah. 
They crossed that one at 18,000 feet. Two minutes later, they entered the Kisarazu. Kisarazu. Kisarazu, okay. Kisarazu holding pattern at 14,000 feet, where they held while waiting for weather conditions at Tokyo to improve. 7.42 p.m., after holding for about 28 minutes, the flight crew notified the air traffic controller that if the weather did not improve in the following 15 minutes, they would be diverting to their alternate airport, which was Taipei, which is not that close, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) So, sure, they must have been carrying a lot of fuel. Ten minutes later, at 7.52 p.m., the air traffic controller advised the flight that the weather had improved at Tokyo. At that time, the captain requested an approach and landing from the air traffic controller, and the air traffic controller gave an approach clearance, and the aircraft began descending to 3,000 feet while still in the holding pattern to prepare for the approach. So they, in order to enter the approach, they still needed to descend, so they kept doing a pattern until they got down to 3,000 feet, then they would start their approach. So it looks like a helix. Right. While descending, however, the weather conditions worsened at Tokyo again. The pilots were advised of the conditions, at which time they requested to discontinue the planned approach and instead requested clearance to Taipei at 7.58 p.m. The clearance was given and the flight began changing course. All right, now we're going to head to Taipei. At 8.05 p.m., just seven minutes later, while flying toward Tatiyama on their way to Taipei, the air traffic controller advised the flight that weather conditions had improved significantly at Tokyo all of a sudden again. The flight crew then requested to return to Kisarazu as they began descending from 11,500 feet again, which was cleared by the air traffic controller. 8.11 p.m., the flight reached Kisarazu at 3,000 feet and began the approach into Tokyo. The approach appeared to be normal at that time. Everything was good. As the aircraft reached 8 nautical miles from landing, they were advised that there was a light tailwind of 5 knots, and they were cleared to land on runway 33 right. This is pretty marginal. 5 knots. We've seen much worse (laughs) in recent episodes. (laughs) 8.12 p.m. and 58 seconds, the aircraft was 5.3 nautical miles from landing when they began their final descent to the runway. The aircraft was flying at 174 knots at the time and gradually slowing to the final approach speed of 140 knots at 2 nautical miles and 114 knots at 1, which is all pretty standard. That all sounds pretty good. As the aircraft reached 1 nautical mile from the runway, the air traffic controller, who was assisting the flight with the approach, noted that the flight was mm, 20 feet too low and informed the flight crew to level off for a moment. This is a... Very short final, basically. It's kind of complicated, but they have some interesting ways they do these approaches because this approach in particular, and don't discuss this in too much depth, was assisted by an air traffic controller whose specialty was the approach. That's a thing. This is a weird kind of approach we've never really talked about, and they didn't name it or discuss it in the report, but that's basically what's going on here. This report was incredibly brief. Yes, very. They did not talk about much. As the flight reached their precision minimum altitude, The flight crew requested that the intensity of the runway approach lights be reduced. Moments later, the aircraft suddenly descended rapidly and struck the number 14 approach light with the main landing gear, 2,800 feet from the touchdown point. The aircraft then continued to strike each of the subsequent approach lights all the way until the number 3 approach light, progressively tearing the airplane apart as it struck each one of them, finally striking the seawall with the forward fuselage at 8.15 p.m., where the airplane was thrown over and broken apart. Doesn't that sound relatively familiar to Asiana? Yeah! This one was much more catastrophic. The aircraft was completely destroyed and a post-crash fire ensued. In all, 10 crew, all 10 crew, perished in the accident, along with 54 of the passengers, but 8 of the passengers survived. This is another one where 8 survived. Yes, 8. A weird 8 number. They struck the seawall really hard. And they went through all those approach lights along the way. So not not good. Not good. I'm a little confused as to why they're like, please turn down the light. I will uh-huh. talk about it. Yep. That 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 that's a that's a red flag. Yep. Not really, actually. Right. So this was, yeah, 
ugly. Like it happened really fast. Everything seemed to be going honestly pretty well <laughs> all the way Other right up until the end. Too low. Right, right up until the end when suddenly they were very low. This was, yeah, ugly. It it happened really fast, and it happened at night. And this is. At the time, they were landing at Tokyo International Airport. I didn't ever clarify that, but that is what is now Tokyo Haneda, because at the time, Narita didn't exist. Right. Narita is now the secondary to Tokyo. Haneda still exists. It is the airport where they landed at. Haneda has expanded since then, but the airport is still pretty much built on the ocean. They built it man-made island on the ocean. I thought they went to Taipei. No, they did not. They that were diverting to Taipei. Yeah. They then, the weather improved, so they then again changed course oh, and came I clearly did not hear that. Yes. So they came back to Tokyo a second time. Okay. This investigation was performed by a court of inquiry, and the report was published as ICAO Circular 96-AN-79. Cool. That's part of why it's so short, is because it was a circular, not a full report. Right. It wasn't actually a full report. This aircraft was not equipped with, nor was it required to be equipped with. A CVR or an FDR? Yeah. At the time, that still was the case, because we're talking about 1966. The flight entered the holding pattern at 716 and held until descending to 3,000 feet at 752, 36 minutes later. Right. So they were holding for quite a while. Right. And Taipei, from where they were holding to where Taipei is, is like a solid hour, hour and a half away. So it's that not like their they diversion not to go. Well, yeah. yeah, that's their diversion point was far away. So they obviously were carrying a lot of fuel. But after holding, they stopped descending and started to divert to Taipei before being advised of improved weather conditions and going back to Kisarazu at 8.07. It was at this point that investigators point out, though not in as many words, that continuation bias became a factor at this point. Because of the low fuel quantity having gone part of the way to Taipei already, it can be inferred that the crew wanted to hurry this landing for both the sake of fuel as well as the rapidly changing weather conditions. Mm -hmm. Investigators then analyzed the approach using the radar data. At first, the approach was at 174 knots, which was a little fast, so they started to slow down at 3 miles out to 114 knots at 1 mile out. Investigators attribute the initially quick speed to either a tailwind, the crew's desire to expedite the landing, or a little bit of both. Porque no los dos. I guess. Either way, they had to reduce their speed in a rather quick manner, and doing so resulted in a low descent profile when they were 1 mile out. Although the glide slope slash ILS was not cleared for operation, it needed a flight check to be cleared. Both the glide slope and localizer were operating at the time of the accident. In fact, a previous flight at 6.30 had used it as a reference, not a sole way to get in. Yeah. Right. But just to check that they're not wildly off course. At 7.58, the accident aircraft said on the airline frequency that they would be performing a ground control approach, or a GCA, with the ILS for reference. And the wreckage showed indeed that they were tuned to the ILS frequency, so it's safe to assume they were using it as a reference. And that's the kind of approach that I was talking about, the ground control approach, where literally the controller was helping them along Step the by way. step, yeah. That's why he was like, you're 20 feet too low, level off, per sec. Which 20 feet's not much. No. The ILS glide slope was at 2.52 degrees, and the GCA glide path was 2.66 degrees, both within the allowable limit of 2.5 plus or minus 0.2 degrees. Following either would lead to a safe landing, but for some reason, the accident flight followed the GCA glide path most of the way until entering a steep descent. Usually when I say for some reason, I end up providing a reason, but I will not be doing so. This there was no reason given. The nature of this report. <laughs> Investigators could find no reason for the sharp descent. The flight crew asked for the lights to be turned down, and the controller turned to do so. They looked back and watched them fade from the scope near the seawall. Dang. That's how fast it happened. 
Investigators determined that they had actually already struck an approach light immediately after their sharp descent, and the lighting system circuit had been broken before the controller reduced its intensity. So in that time that they asked, and he turned to turn down the lights, they had already struck an approach light. Do they know why they... I mean, there's no CVR, right? So I guess we don't really know the full reason, but is there a reason why they asked to have the lights turned down? So this is a phenomenon we have not talked about. I don't remember when I was writing my notes if I wrote it later or not, so we'll see. When you are flying in fog, Mm -hmm. lights will light up all the fog and you see nothing. Yes. Oh, so they couldn't see anything. This is why they use fog machines on movie sets and TV shows sets, because it disperses the light. It allows you to literally take any light source and disperse it throughout the room when it has so much like fog, basically, to bounce off of. So in this case, the approach lights were being so dispersed by the fog that it was way too hard to see. Reducing the lights would help. Oh, okay. Actually. Because they would still be able to see the lights... But they wanted it to be not so much a cloud of white, but more, oh, there's kind of lines of white there. And this is a very common problem in aviation, actually. If you still, if you watch any videos of airplanes landing in fog, actually, it's, it's nearly impossible to be able to have any sense of depth when you're just seeing these lights super bright in the fog. Like, you cannot tell how far away they are, how high you are in comparison to them because of the phenomenon with them, the light being dispersed through the and- fog. And even if they're above minimums, even if the fog is clear enough that they are allowed to legally land, it can still be, especially at night, Mm -hmm. which is when they were flying, that light can still be dispersed so much through the fog. Yep, exactly. So investigators determined that they had struck an approach light immediately after their sharp descent and the lighting system had been broken before the control reduced its intensity. It was determined that the sharp descent occurred 3,900 to 36 feet before touchdown and 2,800 feet before touchdown, so in that range, and sometime between 8.14 and 44 seconds and 49 seconds. It was questioned whether or not the flight crew mistook the approach lights for the runway lights in the low visibility, and investigators deemed that unlikely, though not impossible. A different flight that ended up diverting had attempted landing twice and had previously distinguished the approach lights from the runway lights with all landing lights on, but he performed a misapproach due to having difficulty maintaining directional control during the landing roll, which he attributed to a regular reflection of lights by the fog. He tried again with only the wingtip landing lights, but he was still getting a lot of reflection from the fog, and they diverted to Itazuke. Itazuke? Itazuke. Sure. Visibility was determined to be worse for the accident flight than it was for that particular set of landing attempts. Investigators also looked into the low-pressure system structure in relation to the accident flight. It was found that they were flying through the bottom of the front, which could have led to low-level wind shear or turbulence, but investigators doubt that they would have experienced a drop exceeding 100 feet. Investigators ultimately determined that the descent was intentional by the pilot in command due to optical illusion from the lights in the fog. I was going to say, if they couldn't see clearly, like the landing lights clearly, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of surprised they didn't do a go-around. They were too low, I think. I think they were probably right at the margin of wanting to, and it was too late. Dang. It but we don't, so we don't fast. have CVR, so... But right, we, we don't, don't know. know. So we're right. only making assumptions. Basically. Maybe they had increased power, but... Maybe. Maybe no way too late, late, yeah. I think they mentioned that the control panel for the engines was too destroyed to determine what the engine setting was, mm-hmm. but don't quote me on that. I yeah. wrote these notes like a week ago. That's all I got. Okay. All right, so we can uh, take a break. Take a break. Come back with the second half. Yep. 
Okay, we're back. Yes, we are. For an equally as short second half. Because there are no recommendations, but there are some findings. Not very many, and I'm not doing the first one because it's exactly what all the rest of them are. And this is the shortest probable cause I've ever read. So, yep. so this 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 half is going to be super short. <laughs> they found that the visibility at Tokyo International Airport was reduced at the time of landing to less than half a mile by fog and smoke. RVR was in the order of 3,000 feet. It was just, everything was just very low. Very, the weather was not good. I'm assuming by smoke they just mean overall pollution. Probably. Yep, I assume so. They found that the aircraft carried out a ground-controlled approach to runway 33 right under very difficult conditions. It was considered that the approach was normal until a point located between 3,900 and 3,600 feet before the touchdown point. It then entered a steep rate of descent between 3,900 and 3,600 feet before the touchdown point. It first struck an approach light 2,800 feet from the touchdown point in an attitude of level flight then broke several approach light piers and crashed against the seawall of the airport. The wreckage was thrown over the seawall near the runway threshold and completely destroyed by the ensuing fire. Pretty straightforward explanation of just the whole thing. I'm really surprised people survived. Honestly, yes. Agreed. They found that the steep rate of descent was considered to be the result of an intentional maneuver of the aircraft by the pilot in command with a view to executing a final approach at a lower altitude than normal. They found that although no certain cause for the excessive descent which led to striking the approach lights could be determined, it was considered that the poor visibility due to elusive fog conditions that night misled the pilot in command in his judgment. And that is the findings. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) That's nothing. Yep. The cause or probable causes. I think it's nine words. Pilot misjudged landing approach under unusually difficult weather conditions. That's That's the probable cause. That's it. Great. Okay, bye, guys. <laughs> no. that, That's it. That's it. So this episode, obviously, super short, but they it, it's pretty well summed up in that they didn't, I don't know, something really strange happened that caused them to do a steep descent. I do think it was probably a big part, the optical illusion yeah. of the lights, because usually there are differentiations between the approach lights and the runway lights, but they probably still couldn't tell how high they were and how yeah. far they were. And it only takes split second. And, and the weather was changing so, so quick, they really should have just diverted. I really yes. wish that air traffic control hadn't called them back. Yes. They should have just gone to Taipei. And by the way, a flight from Tokyo to Taipei these days is three hours and 20 minutes. Oh, God. So they were Why far away from so their diversion point. Long. Right. They were far away from their diversion. It was probably so long because all the other airports in the area also had weather. Between that and also a lot of airports didn't exist yet. Oh, that's, we're talking about 1969. In Japan, I'm pretty sure Tokyo was the only, like, reasonable commercial airport that even existed. Osaka, I know, didn't exist yet. Like, the the airport didn't exist. And and neither did any of the other ones I can think of that are in Japan. I mean, they might have existed to some extent, but they might not have been able to take a DC-8, and then there was weather. China, probably not a great place to land. There probably weren't great airports there. Taipei was really, like, the closest thing. Which is already most of the way back to Hong Kong, by the way. Oh, <laughs> good lord! Yeah, so that was the thing, that's, the whole that's thing. Really, all we got. All right, well, that's, let's answer some it. trivia questions. Yep. we're gonna do some trivia Woo-hoo! questions to kill some time in the second half. Because that was literally like less than ten minutes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so... wasn't even five. I think we're at four minutes. Wow. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> we gotta do some trivia questions and some stuff. Okay. All right, here are the trivia questions for this month. So, number one was, what kind of dog is Milo? Milo's an Aussie doodle, or an Australian shepherd poodle mix. Though I do like somebody's answer of, 
He's a good boy. Yeah. He is a certified he is good, a boy. good boy. He is, he is a literally certified good boy. Yes. He has been. He has been through two and a half training courses. Yes. Two and three quarter. Two and like seven eighths if yes. we're really sure. being technical. Sure. Okay. Next one. What are the cat's names? Jinx and Vi. Bonus points if you know what that's from. Yeah. We've yeah. talked about it before. It's from League of Legends or Arcane. Same thing. How many siblings does Miranda have and what's unique about them? I have two and we're triplets. Yep. She has two brothers. I have two Which, brothers. There are some people in my life that I realize just don't know that yet. Like last night at dinner, I was like, Caitlin, do you know how many siblings Miranda has? And she's like, she has siblings. Like, yeah, she has two brothers. She's a triplet. What? What? The amount of people that get so surprised when I tell them that and I forget that people don't know. Yeah. Like they don't. I just assume everyone knows. No, they don't. Not everybody knows. Caitlin didn't even know you had brothers. And then there's Lissa, who's a half identical twin. The weirdest kind. Literally the one of the rarest versions of twins on Earth. There are papers written on her and her sister. Yes. And then, so Miranda and her brothers and Brendan and his brother are all born on August 2nd. A year apart. So but five people with the same bo- birthday. Born on the same day. Holy yeah. birthday. Between two families. <laughs> all right. What animal attack did Nick and Christy survive? Survive I, is such a heavy <laughs> word. It is such a heavy word. And attack is even a heavy word. It was a, it was a bar. It was a hungry black bear that just wanted bear. some noms. And I just yelled, hey, and it wandered off after breaking the window of the truck that we were in. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were in the bed. Yeah, we were in the bed of the truck. It broke one of the front side windows. On the cabin. Yeah. Meh. Meh. What was that? Like a $75 replacement? Something like that. I ordered it off of Amazon and replaced it in like 20 minutes. I want, he wanted some food. He yeah. was hungry. Yeah. And then Nick went right back to sleep and Moose, the, the dog, not an actual Moose, Moose, the dog who had woken us up initially. And I could not fall back asleep. Yeah, Every she, little noise. We we're both like, what was that? Is it back? Yeah. She like curled up between our heads. I went right back to sleep because I'm not afraid of any black bears, not Colorado. Black bears are scaredy bears. They are scaredy <laughs> you bears. You just gotta go, ah! And they'll yeah. run away. <laughs> yeah. They're pretty used to humans in Colorado and they're just scaredy bears. They don't like anything. They don't like being close to anything. That makes noise. <laughs> that sounds like Miranda. Right. Yeah, it does sound like me. <laughs> cool. Uh, and then there's a listener question. Yes. The listener question is from James. It is not in reference to any episode. That's okay. He only asks if we would ever consider doing an episode on UFO reports from pilots. I've been intrigued by this for some time this has come up recently because of all the balloon stuff going well, on there's that and then there was just a couple of years ago when the like nasa and the air released, force yeah. and the air force released a bunch well they confirmed that a bunch of videos that were floating around the internet already and they released their own they were like yeah we don't know what this is they're like, yeah, we spotted it. That's what an, un- we have, an right, unidentified right. flying object Right. Is. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with aliens. It literally just means we have no freaking clue what it was. Aliens. Aliens. <laughs> with hair and the hands. <laughs> aliens. Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would not necessarily consider doing like a normal incident episode, but I would love to interview a pilot who's seen it. Yes. Because I don't know how we would really necessarily cover that. I mean, yeah, it's happened a lot. Like, and there's no there's published a, reports. There's a lot of instances you can find lots of videos of this kind of thing happening. And we we tried to be fairly strict about factual. Yes. Using reports. So But it is an interesting phenomena. And that's that's kind of our niche in the aviation podcast community is that we we take the technical aspect of it because we do read the reports. 
along those lines, I think some of the, the most interesting phenomena that happen actually that are such strange things that only really you'll hear from pilots. Occasionally you might see a picture are like the craziest weather phenomena that we don't experience on the ground. We can't see. I sprites. Wonder... They see sprites and they get uh the hell is that? You don't look know it up. Sprite is? Oh my god, they're the coolest thing. I'll find a picture. While he's doing that. We've seen a lot of posts this week about the Aurora that's been popping up near Fairbanks, Alaska, and I would love to hear from pilots who've flown through that. Yeah, crazy stuff. Let me see if I can find this. Did you find one? The hell is that? Yeah, sprites. They're really, really, really high up electrical storms. Cool. And they're like red. Yeah, they're red. But the craziest thing is they only happen, they're faster than a bolt of lightning. So some pilots will see them and they don't even believe that it happened because it happened so fast. But there is photographic evidence because we've been able to capture them now. Sprites or red sprites are large-scale electrical discharges that occur in the mesosphere high above thunderstorm clouds and right. cumulonimbus clouds. They usually happen in tandem to a lightning bolt on the ground. Cool. So it's a double... How have I never thing. heard of this? I know. It's the craziest thing, right? Well, and then when commercial aircraft get struck by lightning, a lot of times they'll see... Like St. Elmo's fire. Yeah, St. Elmo's fire, and they'll see it up the window. Cool. That's so crazy. cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of phenomenon, too, is really cool. Like, there's just so many things that pilots get to experience that most normal human beings will never see in their lifetime. It's the craziest thing to me. Like, they, they see such strange things. They were talking about the whole Chinese spy balloon thing on the radio the other day. It's just hilarious to me. It's whatever. This whole thing is just freaking hilarious. <laughs> whatever. Anyways. Anyway, so, but they had, someone was interviewing a pilot who had flown with the Air Force before mm-hmm. and had basically told people like dude i've seen stuff like i've there's stuff i cannot explain that i have seen in Mm -hmm. the sky and he's like we were pretty much told not to do that because people are going to think you're freaking crazy yeah which if you think about it it sounds crazy right like yeah oh you've seen things in the sky that what okay whatever yeah whatever but he was talking about there was like numerous times where they've seen like flying objects that fly really really weird and there's been times where there's stuff that just they don't understand like they they have no idea yeah i understand why ufos have the connotation that they do but truly UFO means unidentified flying object. Right. There's literally just something airborne and we don't know what it is. I think there is. I listen to news podcasts and I can't figure out. I can't remember what the term is, but there is a new term now to replace UFO because UFO has an alien connotation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about and I've heard it too, but I I think it's like UAP or something like unidentified aerial phenomenon. Oh, something like that. Something that doesn't sound like UFO. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I, you know, we they also talked about how you have to be extremely ignorant to believe that we're the only living. Oh, yeah. No, statistically? Statistically in the no universe, way. there's absolutely zero chance we're the only like, living we are, things. We are one galaxy in the ridiculously large universe. Like, That's there's constantly no way. expanding. Yeah, yeah. We are there's not, no way. <laughs> we are not the only planet in the Goldilocks zone by, like, an infinite amount, nearly. And there like, was, this, like... There's way more chance that there is something else living in the universe somewhere than there is not. Yeah. And the reality is more than likely we'll never know, too. That's the part that's kind of too bad. Yeah. Because and we'll never be able to meet whomever this is. They probably don't want to meet us anyway. Well, for a few reasons, there's reasons we never should. Primary is diseases. Diseases. (laughs) 
they will kill off one another by meeting. You, you remember how, like, the colonizers killed off so many Native Americans? It was mostly diseases. Right. This would be the same problem. Going on an interplanet level. Right. Like, we don't want Well, and atmospheres that. might be different. Oh yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So There's so many they might be able to survive just... in their atmosphere, but our atmosphere is different. So trying to go between the two probably won't right. work out very and well. Of course, the biggest problem is distance. <laughs> no, really. And the reality is, if some other life form has figured out how to beat time and light, <laughs> then good for them. They figured out something that seems like a, a truly monumental task for any living thing in the universe. So I have my doubts that we would ever actually be able to make contact other than maybe some form of verbal. Yeah. But maybe. that would be, even be a long shot because yeah. sound just doesn't travel that fast. Well, signal travels the same speed as light. Right. And even that, it's not that fast. No. <laughs> not when you're talking about galaxies. In the grand scheme of things, absolutely not. Okay. Quick note to our patrons. You will not have a post episode this week. Nope. Due Sorry. to us having to leave in 10 minutes. Yep. Uh, but... You will get an extra long one when we come back because we will you tell you story time. All, all about the, the stuff. And hopefully we will not have any horror stories. <laughs> I don't think so. Well, we, we're, flying we on, we're flying on the airline that Nick works for. So if yes. we have any horror stories, you know who I'm a complain to? Yeah, me. <laughs> but more than that is that we don't have anywhere near as complicated of plans as we did during the summer. That's this true. is very simple, and we have backup plans. And we're not going anywhere near Heathrow. Thank God. And our plans are flexible, which is why this works. So there's not really anything to complain about if I was something doesn't work. I was telling her, Caitlin, that our backup plan is Paris, and she's like, your backup plan is Paris. <laughs> Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> Although yes. I'm pretty sure we'll get on the Brussels flight. Uh, not probably, yeah. It. it hasn't changed much in the last 24 hours, but there's two less negative now. So that's good. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we'll be able to sit in J. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. It'll be fine. And this flight I'm not worried about. Our bird's airborne. And actually, even though it left uh, 50 minutes late, it's running two minutes late getting here. Solid. Yeah. So we're they, gonna we'll probably leave on time. Delayed. Yeah, it says delayed minutes. by 20 minutes, but the reality is we'll probably leave on time. Okay. Well. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. We dragged this out long enough. Yep. <laughs> yep. Check out the Patreon like normal. And though we, there's no post episode this week, there's post episodes in almost all the other episodes. That's right. So you should go check that out. Yep. Some uh, get personal. Some become therapy sessions. Yes. I, there was literally one where I cried the entire time. So that yep. was fun. Good luck trying to find it. I don't remember. What I, don't, I, don't, I, have I have no clue. idea. I Someone put in the comments or something. I don't know. I don't know. If you can even remember, that was like yeah. a year and a half, two years ago, maybe. Who knows? Good God. Thank you so much for listening. Check out the merch page. Sign up for the newsletter. We appreciate you and your listenership and your patronage. Thanks. And we hope you have a great and healthy week. And we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.